uh, the middle of the week and plenty happening on your radio today. This is Playback Daily. I'm Carol Moran and here's what you might have missed. Have you noticed the gas bill going up? Yeah, uh, the last bill is definitely an eye-opener. Um, couldn't believe the price increase compared to the last bill. Any idea roughly how much it went up by? It, it um probably over 75% I'd say. We have some established supply routes. We can buy the things we need. If you've got things you want to get rid of, sell them and donate the cash to a recognised charity working in the area. So the hashtag is cash not stuff and I cannot express enough how important that is. You know, the experience we've had in journalism in recent years with autocratic leaders, if yes. I can call it that. Of course. Uh, undermining us. Yeah. I've become very defensive of our industry and how it's a pillar of our democracy. And we'll start in the morning and today with Claire Byrne and those eye-watering gas bills coming in the door. Now, winter gas bills have arrived in many households over the last week or so. Some customers have been reeling at the amounts, bills that are twice or in some cases three times the amount that they paid this time last year. Well, Michelle O'Hara is the national spokesperson for MABS. That's the Money Advice and Budgeting Service. And Michelle is here now. You're very welcome, Michelle. Good morning. Thanks for coming in. Now, before we come to the questions that have already come in for Michelle, Michelle, our reporter Brian O'Connell was speaking to people in Cork City Centre this morning about their recent energy bills. Absolutely astronomical increase. I was paying uh, one of these level pay payments, 98 euros a month, and my account was in credit. And all of a sudden, my latest bill is 700 euros. 700 euros? 700 euros. And if, as if that's not bad enough, you actually can't get to speak to anybody. And obviously you were prepared for some kind of increase given... Yeah, yeah, I mean, I've heard it all in, in, uh, on the newspapers and the media and everything. I was expecting an increase, but, I mean, that was utterly shocking to me. So how do you feel about it? It's devastating for some families. I mean, it's, it's, it's a game-changer in terms of keeping the roof over your head or not. It's OK if you can absorb, you know, the extra increase a bit, but what if you can't? 300, 400, 500% increase. Even saying it out loud is crazy. You just can't justify that kind of an increase. Have you noticed the gas prices going up? We have. I suppose the way the world is going, so much is happening in, in the world. It's a very complex situation. Have you noticed the gas bill going up? Yeah, uh, the last bill is definitely an eye-opener. Um, couldn't believe the price increase compared to the last bill. Had you planned for an increase? I did. I budgeted for it as well, but I didn't think it would, it would have... Um, such an effect on, on, on me. Any idea roughly how much it went up by? It, it um, went up by over 75%, I'd say. I thought with the war going on in Ukraine that it wouldn't stay as high. I thought after a while that things would have to be catching up. Um, yeah, it's been a very cold winter, um, especially since December. Is there anything you think that could be done to help alleviate the burden on people? I suppose if the government could give us a bit more cash, like they did with the ESB, that'd be great. Do you think it's time for that? Yeah, definitely. Because it's not going down. And there's another six, seven weeks of cold weather still in it, in it like. Brian O'Connell there in Cork. Then Claire spoke to Michelle O'Hara from MABS. Michelle, one word that a lot of people use and, and that you hear all the time is absorb, right? Mm. Can you absorb this? But mm. that has, that absorption of the increased cost has an impact. It has an impact on how much you have left to spend on other things. And that's what you're dealing with the sharp end of that, right? Exactly. And what we would talk about is that's the area that we would discuss with people when we're working out the budget budgets with them, which is their disposable income. What's left over at the end of the month or the week when you've paid off all of your essential bills and steadily during 2022 and obviously now more so in 2023, we're seeing that that buffer or that cushion is just getting squeezed and squeezed and squeezed because 
it is across the board and that's the reality of it. And an awful lot of these costs are out of people's control to a certain extent. You can do so much and there are there is help available and help through MABS and through our websites and then engaging with our money advisors and we can assist you. But at the same time, when you're going out to do your weekly shopping, I know there have been many reports and from Bernardo's this morning in relation to the number of families reliant now on, on food parcels and also with the, the caption um, uh, Day Centre, yep, Day yep. Center, thank you. This morning they were saying the same thing, the increase. It's not surprising because you're going out and you're seeing that there's an extra 10, 20 cent on your shopping that you were doing or on the item and that all adds up. So what you expected or what you paid last week may not necessarily be what you pay this week. So budgeting even from week to week is becoming increasingly diff- difficult for people. And are you seeing more working people coming to you saying, I'm in trouble? We certainly are, Claire. very much so. That was a trend that MAB saw during 2022 and it's increasing. We're seeing people who've never had to come to MAB's before, people who are single, working families, quite often both parents working, trying to make ends meet. They're working full time, they're paying childcare, they're paying mortgages and of course the mortgage costs are now increasing and we know from uh, AIB that vulnerable, uh, variable customers will be impacted now from the 14th of March. So it is across the board but certainly we are seeing definitely an increase in people coming to us for budgeting supports and for advices as to what they can do in order to try and alleviate Mm -hmm. the the pressures that they're experiencing currently. I know you're concerned about the number of people who are borrowing to pay the gas bills, the energy bills, where they're borrowing from and how much trouble that's going to lead to down the line. What do you want to see them doing? What's the alternative? So for many people, when they hit, we'll say, a financial shock like this, Claire. It is exactly that. It's a shock. And I know, and on, on your Vox Pop, people are saying, well, we knew the, the prices were going up. We'd, I didn't realise it was going to be €700, Euro, €500, Euro, whatever the case may be. When you reach a shock like that, it it is... Something, if you can imagine that you go into a shop and you want to pay for something and you've forgotten your wallet or you've forgotten your purse and the instant shock that you get that you can't pay for something. Now, bring that into a much bigger sphere of a utility bill or a mortgage payment or a loan or something like that. I mean, we are doing internal cost of living survey with our clients currently and preliminary results on the 25th of January showed that over 70% or nearly rather 70% of people surveyed have borrowed in the last six months to cover either household bills or essential costs and they borrowed from either friends or family or some form of credit. Over 75% of those people surveyed during that time have said in the last six months that they have elected to go without heating in order to save costs. And the queries for Michelle came rolling in. I have a family here 
who their family of seven are gas and electricity bill doubled on last winter's bills. So yeah. the gas is 956, the electricity is 715. The biggest bill of our 30 years of paying bills. We budgeted, but not for that. We had to ask for family help and we still haven't cleared it and we're worried. And people will also be thinking, you know, I borrowed for this bill. What happens exactly when it comes to the next one, exactly. which will also be high because we're still not into warm weather. That's correct. So, the, so what we would say, in, if you find yourself in that situation and you need the advice on it, this is why MABS is there. We can offer you advice. We can offer you face-to-face appointments. We will work with you on your budgets and any debts that you might have. Uh, there are hardship funds available from many of the uh, energy suppliers that you can apply for either directly to the supplier or you can pl- apply for it through MABS. Michelle O'Hara from Today with Claire Byrne. And in the afternoon, Ray Darcy was out and about meeting Senator Lynn Ruan and British actress Miriam Margulies to talk unlikely friendships, newfound fame and Lady Gregory. Uh, so I'm sitting here uh, with Miriam Margulies and Senator Lynn Ruan. Hello to you both. Hello. Good morning. Yeah, Lovely great. to be with yeah, you. Yeah, great to be in your company. I'm really <laughs> looking forward to this. Because <laughs> yeah. both of you are joyous, you know, there's, there's big smiles on your faces. Um, so it looks like through this documentary you've met kindred spirits in oh, each definitely. other, have you? Yeah, without definitely. a doubt, yeah. without a doubt, we we bonded, and I just feel joy in in Lynn's company. As I was saying earlier, she's focused, honest, and brings such caring and 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 vitality to any meeting. I'm very lucky to have met her, and I want you in my life <laughs> for the rest of my life. It's not going to be that long, don't worry. But I want you there. Thank God. It's not a big commitment, Lynn. I know. I'm joking. You're getting away easy there. (laughs) I'm hoping I get the gaff in Sicily on the back of that. (laughs) Well, play your cards right, girl. Because it's not a given, Lynn, is it, that you're, you know, when you meet somebody, when you're thrown together in a documentary, that you click? No, Mm. I think we're both quite layered, like, so we can be as equally serious about things as we can turn to humour and I think that that kind of bounces off each other then and, and makes for I suppose a good friendship you know yeah. <laughs> and was there any fear because they showed that clip on the Late Late Show um, people won't have seen it yet where you arrive for the first time out to Tala uh, and Lynn goes can I have a hug and you go no hugs and you know <laughs> like it was an awkward enough moment was it or, <laughs> well it's a new moment I do well with awkward like I mean I don't I don't kind of buckle under situations like that, even though internally I might be going, how will I manage this? <laughs> yeah. But I kind of respond quite well. But I was nervous. Like, I mean, I've never co-hosted or presented a show, first of all. So it was a very new experience for me. And then to do it with somebody who was so revered in Ireland and, and, and elsewhere is kind of like, you know, there's always that internal dialogue yeah. going on where you're going, God, I hope I can, you know, match the energy and match the intellect and be able to, I well, suppose, you did. bring the story. Surpassed and Surpassed it. Yeah. But I, I hadn't even remembered that moment. Mm. I mean, it wasn't awkward for me because I say it to everybody yeah. because it's to protect me against of course. the pandemic. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. And so far, I haven't caught COVID and I don't bloody want it. Congratulations. Yeah. You're in the minority. I know. I kept thinking, right? I remember laughing and I was like, imagine the absurdity of me bringing Miriam Margulies to tell her or her getting COVID or something happening to her. What if I kill off Miriam Margulies while she's here in Ireland? What will I do? Well, you haven't. (laughs) (laughs) So your plans went awry there. (laughs) 
<laughs> you, you, you love life, Miriam, and, and you love people and you love listening to people. Uh, and accents and voices are just, they're your, your trade. Well, but they're also part of people. Yes. You don't have a voice without a person. Mm. And that delights me. I enjoy mm. it. And did you imagine, as you travelled around the country and spoke to people who knew about Lady Gregory, did you imagine her voice in your head at all? We tried to mm. imagine mm. what it would be like, because, of course, she was... Uh, I'm not upper class. She was upper class. She was ascendancy. Mm. She had background. I've just got foreground, I'm afraid. <laughs> <laughs> Stop me from reaching you. Um, Frontage. Frontage yeah. Exactly. We did wonder what she, what she would sound like. I think like. they played, they found a clip that they thought might be her. But it's not. And then the academic just said that is not. It was like a recreation maybe of, at some stage. Mm. So we were thinking about what, what would she sound like, you know. And obviously, I think her accent may have changed slightly. Because I think once you learn the Irish language as well, you might bring some new sounds and ways of saying things. But I would imagine, yeah, pretty posh. Mm. <laughs> uh, we were speaking about Kindred Spirits and, and you found bits of yourself in her. Both of you mm. did. She was a multifaceted woman. So I, I would like to think that some of her warmth is in me because people felt, you know, the, the, the people of the other class, the lower class that she associated with a lot, they found her warm, mm. they found her kind, mm. and they related to her. And I think I like to feel that I've got that gift of, of going beyond myself in... in, in, in gathering people to me yeah i think as well as women we've both the treat like lady gregory and then both of us we probably stepped outside what people would have ordinarily thought was our space as well you know so like but whore from from you know landlordism to nationalism you know going against her family you know trying to you know so many things that she did that would have been way ahead of her time and she was really trailblazing on her own um, and i think she kind of pushed the boundaries of what was expected to her and i'd like to think that in airways as well and in in, in the worlds that we've come from that we pushed those boundaries mm. too so i think there's similarities in that sense too and ray asked miriam about her rise in popularity of late it's so strange to be suddenly so famous and so <laughs> uh, and popular and you know i've written a book yes and it's been 44 weeks in, oh, you've got it there. This yes. much is true. This much is true. And it's a, it's a right rollicking read. It I is. <laughs> well, it's a bit naughty in places, yes, but it's yeah. truthful. No. There's yeah. not a word of a lie in it. No, anywhere. no. And I, I understand you a lot more now. Do you? Yeah, well, for example. Well, don't get your hopes up. But <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's, funny. that's funny. I was just thinking of somebody else I interviewed a long time ago, and I said, you're quite normal. And they said, no, what, no, what, no what I learned in, about Miriam in the book was, and it was less about, I couldn't believe it. So I obviously studied philosophy. Mm. And I say Miriam gets contacted a lot about like, you know, celebrities or that she's met or, you know, being on set with like Arnold Schwarzenegger and all these people. Mm. But in her book, I learned that her father and her mother invited Isaiah Berlin over to dinner for uh, the nomination letter for, for her to go to university. Yeah, they wanted me to get to university. And they knew, my mother knew, even though she'd never had a proper education, she knew that his name alone was enough to get me and into university. And what was the, the family connection to him? So he is a him. philosopher. Yes, she, yes. My dad was her doctor. Doctor. 
Aha. Was but I, co- I couldn't believe it because I have read so much Isaiah Berlin and he wouldn't be hugely known in the like unless you studied philosophy or you came across his books mm. and stuff. I couldn't believe it. I emailed her straight away. I was like, Isaiah Berlin. Like, you know, it was amazing. Like, yeah. I was most excited by that in the so book. Your dad was a doctor. Daddy was a doctor born in Glasgow. Mummy mm. was mm. really a businesswoman born in Liverpool. And um, they met in London at a Jewish tennis club. Did you know there was Jewish tennis? <laughs> Different Jews, rules. No. Well, Jews weren't allowed or welcome at ordinary tennis clubs, so they had their own, you uh-huh. see. And um, I was their only child. And mummy loved me so much and gave me a lot of confidence. And I think that's the key. Mm. It doesn't matter whether your parents are the same sex or if they're old or young or whatever. If you love a child and give it confidence, that's the key for the future. Mm. Would you agree with that? Yeah, that's, that confidence that's, that's, is key for yeah, so it much. Is key. Yeah. It is key, yeah. it is key. She cleaned in the nude. She did all yes. her domestic chores in the nude. Yeah. See, that's, that, that's why I said I understand you a little bit more. You know, because if you're growing up with that, there's a sort of nudity is nothing really. It's 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 a normal in a well, way. Well, Daddy wouldn't do that. No, I, mean, I never saw that'd, Daddy that'd in weird. the nude, no, yeah. but I saw Mummy in the nude, uh, yeah. and I didn't think about it. You know, yeah. and now if I if I'm in the nude, I don't think about it. I don't wa- I don't want to be in the nude on television or anything like that because <laughs> that would upset people. <laughs> But I don't mind nudity. Nothing wrong with the body, is there? No. Just I, as long as you keep it clean, it's fine. And and sh- so she was very open and liberal, was she? Or, or? Well, she was a mixture. <clears throat> she wasn't... She wasn't liberal politically. They always voted conservative, believe it or not. But she was liberal... Uh, in her spirit, she was mm. liberal. She loved people. And she connected with people. And she warmed a room when she came into it. The temperature went up. It was joyous, really. Mm. She was wonderful. But but you read the book as well, I have. Lynn. So that's where that famous Welsh artist, Augustus John. Yes, yeah. tell, tell us that story. You, you know yeah. the story, don't yeah, you? Yeah, I us, do. And actually, Lady Gregory's Holiday Home had a number of Augustus John fireplaces erected in it, which was a lovely kind of synergy. Yes, all <laughs> and you connected. remember the tree in Cool yes. Park? That, yes, that he inscribed his the autograph on. tree. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. And he painted you in the nude. Yes. I I didn't make a habit of it. It was just I saw him on television and I loved him. He was a great big artist with a beard that he stroked and his eyes bored into you. He was a wonderful looking fellow. And I just thought I want to meet that chap. So I wrote to him and offered my services as a, as a model. I didn't say nude because I didn't think of that. Mm. But he, his wife, who was very sort of like the actual no. In fact, I wondered if Lady Gregory would have spoken like the Very far back, we call it. And she said, um, she rang my mother, and she said, uh, my husband would like to paint uh, your daughter in the nude. Would that be all right? And... I do not know to this day, I can't imagine why Mummy said yes. But she was a social climber, mm. so she probably thought, oh, well, I'll peddle my daughter, you know, <laughs> get up the social scale. And you were, you were, ni- you were 19 and he was in his 80s? I, I think I was 17. Right, okay. And right. he was in his 80s, yeah. yes. Yeah. And, I, and I went there and I took my clothes off very quickly and a little bit embarrassed, 
and he looked at me and stroked his beard, and then he said, Climb that ladder. And I said, what? See <laughs> a, a library ladder over there. Just, you know, hold the pole and climb up. So I was glad he meant the library pole. Anyway, um, <laughs> I went up the ladder and he looked at me. I mean, it's an odd thing to do in the nude, you know. Mm. And he stroked his how, beard. How, how, how big were the gaps between the lats? That's what I want to know. <laughs> just, just ordinary. <laughs> I don't think I was gaping in any way. Um, and he, he just stroked his beard and said, The light, the light, your skin takes the light. Very nice. Very nice. Miriam Margulies and Lynn Ruan from The Ray Darcy Show. And on today with Claire Byrne, a terrible loss of life in Syria and Turkey after devastating earthquakes. Now first this morning, rescuers are still searching for survivors in southern Turkey and northern Syria. After those two huge earthquakes on Monday, more than 9,600 people are now known to have been killed, over 7,000 of those in Turkey, and that figure is expected to rise further. Search efforts continued for a second freezing cold night. But time is running out for those rescuers to find survivors under the rubble. With more on this, I'm joined by David O'Byrne, journalist in Istanbul. David, thank you for joining us again on the programme. Is this moving now from a recovery mission as opposed to a rescue mission? Um, It is, yeah. As you you said, the the, the death toll, sadly, is is inexorably climbing upwards. Um, In Turkey, it's up to 7,108. That's up over... 200 since the last time I looked this morning. Uh, There are still people being rescued. Um, We've seen footage of an 80-year-old woman pulled out of a building which, well, frankly, if anybody survived in it, it was an absolute miracle, but she came out alive. Uh, There's a five-year-old girl, again, pulled from a building which had completely collapsed. She was trapped in a little tiny space. Um, She came out alive as well. And there was a 12-year-old girl who was pulled out of a the ground floor of a building which had partly collapsed. She was uh, trapped behind railings. So there are, there are still some miracles happening, but as you say, the, the temperatures are down. It was minus one this morning in the area uh, where the quake happened. Uh, it's very cold. There are warnings of um, uh, sewerage in the, uh, in the drinking water. People are being warned not to use the, the mains water. So really, um, yeah, as you said, it's, it's rapidly turning into a, 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 from a rescue operation into more of a recovery operation. And that recovery will, will include uh, erection of tent cities, getting food, getting shelter in there, getting blankets and warm clothing in there too to help the people who have survived and who have, in many cases, nothing. Exactly, yeah. The, I mean, the, there was nearly 6,000 buildings collapsed. Um, obviously, a lot of people will have managed to get out of those buildings. They're now homeless. But there's another um, 11 or 12,000 buildings that are so seriously damaged that people have been warned not to go back into them. So there's a huge number of people who are effectively homeless. They have no clothes, no bedding, um, nowhere to stay. Uh, we've been told that over 70,000 tents uh, have been brought down into the area. They're slowly or actually quickly being being erected into tent cities in uh, sports stadiums, in parks, anywhere where there, there, there's room that they can be erected safely. Um, the, the, the other challenges uh, are also providing food for the people. I mean, there are food, there are food kitchens being set up, but there's a ridiculous, I mean, incredible number of people who are basically homeless. 
uh, lacking basic facilities and unable to feed themselves. So it's an enormous logistical challenge. Yeah, the, the World Health Organization came up with a figure of 23 million people who will be affected directly by this earthquake in both countries. The human cost of this, it's, it's hard to get your head around, David, isn't it? It's, it's unimaginable. It's staggering. Uh, I mean, I, as I told you when we spoke yesterday, I, I covered the, the earthquake in northwest Turkey in, in 1999. I spent a lot of time in the areas that, that were affected. Um, this, from what I've seen, is, is, is just a lot worse, even though the death toll now is, is a lot lower. Um, we've got absolutely no idea uh, how many buildings have been searched, how many, uh, what percentage of the, the people who've been killed uh, have been, uh, their bodies have been retrieved. It does look, from from what we're, from, the, from the limited amount of information that we're getting, that this could be an awful lot worse than 1999, uh, and it's going to take an awful lot longer um, for things to be brought back to, well, as close to normal as possible. And for the families of, of the missing, as you mentioned there, the people whose bodies still haven't been recovered, are there avenues av- available to them right now, David, to attempt to trace their loved ones? Uh, there's, there are communication centres set up, but what they can, how much they're able to do, I, I really don't know. Um, we've heard we've heard reports, we've seen footage of people sitting on buildings crying because their 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 loved ones, their relatives, are somewhere under the rubble, and there's, there's insufficient um, rescue operations to help them try and retrieve them. Um, it's going to take an awful long time um, for these people to, get to to receive the closure they need. Even even those people who survived, I've been watching footage of uh, people being flown out to, to Istanbul and to other cities, uh, injured, the injured being taken to hospitals there to receive treatment. Uh, it's got an enormous logistical challenge for, the, for those people to stay in touch with their relatives back in the area that was affected. Mm-hmm. Is mobile phone coverage back? You know, we, we touched yesterday on the fact that infrastructure was badly affected, including mobile phone coverage, making this recovery, rescue and tracing effort even more difficult. Yeah, communication seems to be reasonably good. Um, in 1999, that was a complete contrast that the, the communications were almost non-existent. This time, because the mobile phone networks in Turkey are—they're much—they've rolled out much further. They basically cover everywhere. Um, it's been far easier for the authorities to to get on top of the situation, but the situation is just so bad. Um, whatever they're doing, just it, 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 it's just not enough. David O'Byrne in Istanbul. Then Claire spoke to Andrew Lee, Professor of Public Health at University of Sheffield. Explain to us, if you can, the complexity around mounting a search and rescue operation after an earthquake such as this one. I think your correspondent described it beautifully just now. I mean, it's complex and it's never enough. It's never enough, and that's by definition what a disaster is. You know, this is an event that is of a scale that far exceeds the local capacity to respond. So there'll never be enough rescue teams, and they're working in very hazardous conditions. There are still the risk of further aftershocks that can go on for weeks, sometimes even months afterwards. So already damaged and fragile buildings are at risk of collapsing. But we're only at the first phase of this disaster, which is the search and rescue element. And it will change to a different phase with very, very different needs. And I think you you, you mentioned it. There, there are 23 million people at risk here uh, of post-earthquake effects as well. 
we just are, you know, keeping a very close eye on the estimate on, on the numbers killed. And, you know, even this morning, it was rapidly increasing from 9,000 at the beginning of the morning to I think we're at 9,600 is the estimate at the moment. Given how quickly those numbers are changing, Andrew, what do you expect or can you estimate what the final number is likely to be? Um, not with certainty. Um, from my experience of previous earthquakes, certainly in the first few days, these casualty estimates are very inaccurate and they tend to mount. It might be a few weeks before you have a total figure. Don't forget a lot of the data you're getting from at this point in time are from the major urban areas where there is some form of government um, present. Further out you go to more remote areas, um, information is even more difficult to get. And if you're in Syria, I suspect that's even worse. Now you are, as I said, a professor of public health and, and one of the facts that David explained to us was that people are being warned about the drinking water that it may be contaminated with sewage. Outbreak of disease then will be a concern with it at this point. Indeed, because you've got broken uh, sewer lines, you've got broken water pipelines, um, gas pipes have also been cut uh, with explosion risks on top of that. And if you look across the border in Syria, I'm not sure if people were aware, but there's actually an ongoing uh, cholera outbreak there. So, so a lot of risks exist in the area. And on top of that, this time of year, you've got winter and the risk of like, exposure as well. So there are a lot more risks other than just a direct earthquake. And we're seeing these images. I mean, they're difficult to to watch the rescue operation, which is currently underway. But the long term impacts of this disaster, they're difficult to grapple with as well. But they will be dealt with for years and years to come by the people in, in both of these countries. Indeed, it's, it's really tragic, isn't it? And what we know is, you know, within a, a matter of weeks, the, the, the world's public attention and media attention will move on to the next crisis somewhere else. But for the people affected here, as you say, it takes years to recover and rebuild afterwards. Um, and many of them will suffer long-term health consequences, whether it's mental health, post-traumatic stress disorder, or if they've had physical injuries and disabilities, they'll need all that rehabilitation for years afterwards. Andrew Lee, Professor of Public Health at the University of Sheffield. And later, Claire spoke to Professor Lucy Easthope, Professor of Risk and Hazard at Durham University and author of When the Dust Settles, Stories of Love, Loss and Hope from an Expert in Disaster. Professor Easthope, thank you for joining us this morning on the programme. How do you assess the response so far in the immediate aftermath of these earthquakes? Oh, thank you very much for having me on. This is looking incredibly difficult. So really, anything is a is a miraculous achievement. In terms of factors that are affecting this, this has every possible additional challenge. Um, so there's an awful lot of work to get to uh, going on, but the task is phenomenal. And talk to me about what you have seen. I know you're just going on what we're all going on, you know, the the pictures that we're seeing, those desperate rescue attempts, the erection now of tents so that people have some shelter from the cold weather. Is it going as you would expect or what's the reality of this in the aftermath of of a disaster? 
it never feels uh, quick enough for people on the ground. And I think that's one of the most heartbreaking things to witness is people saying nobody is coming. Um, this is mother, mother Nature at her most destructive. The the quake was so close to the surface that it's caused terrible uh, loss of buildings and high-rise buildings. So people are feeling very abandoned in certain areas. We don't have a huge amount of information of uh, rebel-held areas of Syria. So there's, there's some big unknowns in this response at the moment. Um, but everything is adding up here for this to be a, just the most complex of humanitarian disasters. And over 70 countries have pledged aid, haven't they? But how is that coordinated? How do the logistics come together on the ground? Because I'm sure it can't always run smoothly, Lucy. Absolutely. And, and there's a long history of actually the aid itself being almost a second disaster within the disaster. Um, this is the kind of scenario, though, that we, we can plan for. We know that earthquakes are very much a part of, of this region's risk profile. And there are some very well-established mechanisms for sending out coordinated aid. So Ireland is part of the EU civil protection mechanism, which has been activated. And that's a very organised response. Um, and also, um, particularly on the Turkish side, Turkey has um, preparedness in this area and will hopefully be being given the chance to coordinate what it needs. It's very important that, you know, sometimes aid sent in can be very overwhelming. Um, there's a long history actually of search and rescue teams not always getting on and coordinating um, quite poorly together. But hopefully what we'll see here is, is certainly a few weeks of just everybody pulling together. Um, in my work, the big challenge comes about the 12, 14 week point. The media's eye has moved on, but the really hard work is only just beginning. Explain that to us. What does that look like? So it can really feel for communities like a complete sense of abandonment. And that you, you know, that's why my book's called When the Dust Settles. As the dust settles, you kind of take stock of just how much work there is to do. Communities can feel very isolated. We, we will only start to see the true scale of loss at about that point. There's an initial death toll now, but that will increase due to cold, injury and um, an illness. So, it, you know, what, what, one thing I would ask people listening is don't feel helpless. Please donate, but donate cash, not not donated goods or blankets or jumpers. Please donate cash to the charities that are well established in the area. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that because even on social media this morning, I saw some really well-meaning groups and, and individuals asking, is there a drop-off point in such and such a town where I can leave supplies to be taken to Turkey and Syria? You're saying that's not what to do. It's definitively not helpful with just a few exceptions, occasionally for a very specific targeted need. It's probably one of the worst things that you can do. It's a thing that gets me a lot of a lot of grief on social media. You know, people say, What do you mean? This is such a lovely thing to do. What we, we have, we have some established supply routes. We can buy the things we need. If you've got things you want to get rid of, sell them and donate the cash to a recognized charity working in the area. So the hashtag is cash not stuff and I cannot express enough how important that is. Um, it, it all it does is create extra work for the responders on the ground. It comes from a place of heart, but do remember that not all help is good help after disaster. Professor Lucy Easthope talking to Claire Byrne in the morning. And on the live line, the Creasla disaster and a documentary on TG Cahar. The programme is on TG Cahar uh, television tonight. It's called Nuka, which my leaving cert uh, Irish tells me means investigation. And it's about the Creasla 
uh, explosion. And as you, if you were listening yesterday, as you know, at the end of the programme, you heard uh, from Killian, uh, Killian Flanagan on behalf of his sister Anya. Anya lost her partner, Robert, and her five-year-old uh, daughter Shauna in the explosion. You will remember the story. Every every victim had a story, unfortunately. And the story was that Robert and Shauna were in the garage buying um, a birthday cake for uh, their their Anya for her mother. Uh, we've now had the families of four victims of the Creasley disaster uh, asking us to. Uh, plead with TG Cahar and indeed RTE not to broadcast this programme called Investigation uh, tonight. Um, and uh, first of all, I want to bring you, 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 will, um, you will remember uh, Martina Martin. Martina Martin was working in the shop and we've been contacted by the sisters of Martina Martin. By the way, when I say four victims, we haven't heard from the families of other victims. So no victim family, as far as we know, are supporting this broadcast or were interviewed for this broadcast this evening and we've also been told uh, quite reliably that a number of people who were interviewed for tonight's programme have subsequently asked E.G. Carr to postpone the broadcast. This is a letter we got and uh, the Martin family asked us uh, to read it out so listeners could hear uh, their uh, position on tonight's programme. Dear Joe. We have been informed by our Garda liaison officer by text yesterday evening that there is a documentary to be aired tonight and we wish to make our feelings known. Give us time to grieve. As sisters of Martina Martin, we ask you do not air the documentary at this time. We do not need a reminder. We were there. We are the family the digger driver talked about behind him. We will never need reminded of the watching and waiting, the rescue dogs, then cadaver dogs, into the next morning until Martina's body was recovered. We are in pain and struggling to cope with a loss that was sudden, horrific and very public. We have had no answers yet as to a cause, only speculation and rumours. We have had no post-mortem, so we ask you, would you like to sit and watch a documentary about an explosion that killed your sister and nine others four months later? We would like to acknowledge the people of Creasla, the emergency services, the Gardaí and volunteers were all amazing and they showed us such respect and caring this all deserves to be recognised. That is from the family of Martina Martin and the digger uh, driver they talk about is uh, obviously... The programme hasn't been broadcast yet, but in pre-publicity, extensive pre-publicity by T.G. Carter for the programme, one of the people, one of the extracts they uh, released was the digger driver uh, talking about it. Now, whether he knew it was going to be released before the actual broadcast, we don't know whether he's still in favour after what the Martin family said. They were the family he's talking about. Um, whether he's, he knew the programme was going out so soon, uh, we don't know. But as I say, um, there were 10 families bereaved um, and uh, four of them, so, of 10 people bereaved and the families of four of the victims so far have contacted us asking and you heard them there pleading with uh, T.G. Carter not to go ahead. And then Hugh Harper called Joe. Hugh lost his 14-year-old daughter, Leona, in the explosion. And I'm so sorry you have to talk to you under these circumstances. 
And, well, thanks, uh, for, thanks for having us on, Joe, and giving us a chance to okay. express our concerns. And, and, and with your permission, that's what I'll just stick to, is this broadcast this evening. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, I know your grief is uh, unending and infinite over dear Leona, who was 14 years of age. Again, I'd say to people, you'll remember the gorgeous photograph of Leona in her liver, Liverpool. Am I right? Her Liverpool jersey. Yeah, her Liverpool yeah. jersey. Okay. Yeah, she loves she loved for that club, yeah. yeah. When did you hear about this programme? Very, very recently, Joe. Um, uh, at the most, in the past couple of days, um, we knew it was in the pipeline, but we didn't know that it was going to be aired so quick. Mm-hmm. Um, we just feel that this is this is that it's, it's far too soon. It's far too early. Uh, it's far too raw for the families. I can't speak for all the families, but of course, yeah. um, I can only speak for ourselves. Really, that my wife Donna was on the scene literally minutes after the explosion with our, our two boys mm-hmm. what what they've seen and what they, the memories they have to live with and there's some there's some confusion Hugh um, about the nature of the programme on the one hand it's called uh, investigation but the other hand in the letter that um, TG Cahar sent to the Flanagan family and uh, Killian was on with us yesterday and gave us a letter. Uh, T.G. Carr said, I want to take this opportunity to reassure you about the content of the programme. The overwhelming focus of the documentary is to shine a light on the people of the area who assisted in the rescue at the scene of the explosion and give them the recognition uh, many many feel they deserve. But that's not the name. The name on the programme is Investigation. And that would... Well, that, Joe, sorry. Sorry, Joe, I don't mean to cut across you. You know, the, 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 the main issue is that None, as far as I know of, none of the families, especially us, I can speak for us, we haven't been notified, contacted to say X, Y or Z. This is what's going to be aired, this is what's going to be said. Um, I'm I'm highly concerned about any images that's going to be portrayed mm-hmm. uh, from the show. Um, I mean, uh, again, my wife was on the scene very early on with the kids. Yeah. Other people were there. You know, what video footage of TG Cahill got? What what images do they have? Mm-hmm. Uh, our concern is not the people that are interviewed. Yeah, I yeah. know I know personally the people that are interviewed, yeah. and I have no concern whatsoever with what they've said mm-hmm. or what they've done. That's the unknown that worries us. And they say all the this strategic heart statement. All the contributors wanted to express their gratitude at how an ordinary community came together at a time of great difficulty to try to assist their friends and neighbours. I thought that was well known and, and given that uh, everyone uh, was deeply, deeply, including the families, were deeply uh, grateful for uh, for everyone who reacted to that uh, awful uh, disaster. So they say that's one of the reasons they're doing the programme. And, well, they say, and they say, as a public service broadcaster, we have to express the wishes of those who do wish to talk about the events that affect them. Now, that gives you... Well, I'd love to... We've asked TG Card to come on, but unfortunately they won't. But that begs the question, did the people who were in this programme ask TG Carr to make the programme? Because they say, as a public service... Bro- we're all public service broadcasters, including mm-hmm. News Talk, including Virgin Media. As a public service broadcaster, we have to express the wishes of those who do wish to talk about the events that affected them. Are you aware, Hugh, that... Any of the first responders or the digger driver that was there that day, that they they expressed a wish to be interviewed about this. 
Well, they, you know, I have been told that they, they, they did the interview, the SAP interview, they told me, they didn't tell me in fine detail because I didn't want, want to know at the time what the interview contained. Um, mm-hmm. I can appreciate that the programme and a sentiment is, is wanting to acknowledge the people, what they've done, uh, the, the emergency services, first responders. Uh, and again, that uh, that's not really an issue for me, per se, as, a, as our family. It's the unknown, it's the lack of the communication. I mean, I wrote an email and sent it to T.G. Cahar. No response. My wife was on the phone today. She got through to T.G. Cahar on, okay. on the phone. And very uh, uncooperative. Did you know, you know as, if, as if we shouldn't be making an issue about this. This is just something that's going to happen, like it or not. But. Hugh Harper, father of Leona Harper, from The Live Line with Joe Duffy. And in the morning, a conversation traversing everything from modern media, online trolling and Trump, when CNN reporter Max Foster joined Ryan Tuberty. As a news junkie and a CNN aficionado, it's great to to see you in real life. So thanks for being here today. This was uh, not this studio, but obviously the radio studio was your sort of beginnings. Uh, mm. Going back to hospital radio, is that right? Yeah, I mean, it's lovely to be back. I mean, this was my, is my first love, really. Yeah. It's that intimacy of radio. And I think it's just, I mean, it, you know, what you have with your listeners is so intimate. I think it's, I don't know, it's a very powerful medium. I'd love to go back to it at some yeah. point. I ended up in TV from I, radio. No, it's, it's, it's funny because for years as a younger guy, I always thought TV was the golden fleece. And then and I'm fortunate enough to be able to do TV and I love it. But as I get older, the, the radio has this lovely attraction. The word that yeah. you use is one I always associate with radio, which is intimacy. And yes. there's this sort of strange connection with the, with the yes. listener that you can't quite get with a viewer. Yeah. So I was, um, I remember there's a, a friend of mine at school and she asked me this question. Um, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I actually did say TV presenter. Yeah. <laughs> and she was working at the BBC local radio station. And I said, oh, could you get me in there? And she goes, I'll speak to them. And, I, and they wouldn't speak to me. Anyway, I wrote to them and they said, no, we can't have you at all. Um, but I, I was still quite keen. So I applied to the local radio, uh, hospital radio station. Yeah. And um, they did let me in. And it actually is one of those blessings, isn't it, where yeah. I had a whole show rather than running around sort of making tea as you would at RTE or BBC. Yeah, which I was time. doing here for years, yeah. teeing. But you got the show, so you, you, you were able to get kind of air miles on a, on a regional plane. Well, yeah, but it's also this amazing, it had a very small audience, but it was people in bed ill. And it was, um, I very quickly learned that they, it, they were completely dependent on it. They, couldn't, they didn't have anything else at that yeah. time. Yes. And they were listening. And I was trying to figure out what they wanted. And actually... They weren't depressed. They wanted uplifting stuff. So I would do these entertainment sort of segments. Yeah. And it did quite well. And then I brought some friends in and they swore on air and then I got told off massively. <laughs> and I, thankfully, people were listening. Um, and then from that, I wanted to go in. I decided I did want to go into broadcasting. And then at the time, you to get into the you know, into broadcasting, ITV or BBC, you needed a degree. So I went off and did a degree. Yes. When I, I went to Cardiff University. And um, I got some work experience eventually at the BBC in London, and they put me in touch with someone in Cardiff who was producing Rob Brydon's show. Oh, yeah. So he had this show that went on Radio Wales and on Radio 5, and they had this um, brilliant scheme trying to bring young people on. So if you were a student or a local, you could go and put reports together. you got to go. So i got to go, and I got um, 
there's this little deal. I, I, I use my, it was, at the time, the um, student union in Cardiff was one of the major gigging points yeah. around the UK. So bands would go to the union. So I'd use my student credentials to get in there and then I'd interview them for the BBC and the BBC was getting all these exclusives. Great. Well, so that was clever. Was, yeah, and that's yeah. what got me into journalism. And and when and, and now CNN of course yeah uh, from that was a big leap across the Atlantic. Why did you do that? I mean, it, it's probably obvious. It's it's such a big organisation, but t- t- give me a sense of that move. Well, I worked. I went. I went through BBC Local Radio, then I went to World Service Radio, and then I got a transfer to TV, and I ended up on BBC Breakfast reporting as a business reporter. And there, at the time, I was doing a bit of business presenting, but Moira Stewart was doing the news anchoring. And uh, Dermot, uh, and who was he anchoring with at the time? I can't remember. But the main anchors decided they didn't want to come in as early anymore. Yeah. So they asked Moira and I to do the first half hour. I only did it for a while, but someone at CNN saw that and they offered me a job. And, so, and so it began. Um, what was it about uh, journalism that you wanted to tackle? Did you want to get inside people's minds? Did you want to tell the story? Did you want to... Uh, learn more. I mean, what, what 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 was the driving force behind? Did you did you emulate somebody? Did you want to be? No, like I've never really had a uh, because I sort of ended up doing. I started off wanting to do entertainment, and then I ended up in journalism. I mean, one of the big stories I had at Cardiff was, was defining was I saw Anthony Hopkins in a restaurant, <laughs> and I didn't want to disturb him, but I left him a letter and I said, um, "Would you?" possibly do an interview I'm a struggling journal you know yeah. student journalist yeah. I'd love to get and he wrote back a few months later and said yes and I got an interview with him and he hadn't spoken about whether he'd do a second science of the lambs at the time and he had just got a knighthood and he hadn't spoken about any of it but that interview got on and it was the buzz from that all the newspapers picked it up and it was partly the impact of journalism and entertainment's great and it's fun but I, it was just, I don't know, I liked that buzz. And then the more I did it, the more it became a public service thing, really. And now, if I'm honest, it's about defending democracy. And particularly when I've, you know, the experience we've had in journalism in recent years with autocratic leaders, if yes. I can call it that. Of course. Uh, undermining us. Yeah. I've become very defensive of our industry and how it's a pillar of our democracy and if people don't get the right information, they can't make the right decisions. And politicians that don't like that being challenged are trying to undermine us. And Ryan asked Max about CNN's handling of the Trump years. As that began for me from as a viewer to watch it with largely CNN, with Donald Trump, and the ugliest uh, abuse from him as a candidate and subsequently as a president being shouted from that very important pulpit that he had uh, to point at all the, the journals and the hacks down the back, um, but to single out names, to single out organisations, and thereby sowing mistrust, uh, fake news, these words, and they all got traction. Yeah. And the ugliness was real. And it, it, I, I felt, to be honest with you, from as, as somebody who, like, you're, like well, most people read a bit of history, uh, that it felt 1930s stuff and it felt very menacing and very threatening, very ugly and very unclean. Yeah. Well, it sucks people in. I mean, what really worries me is um, people want you to be part of their campaign. So, I don't know, one day you'll do a story which is seen as pro-Trump or pro-Israel or pro-Turkey you know, Turkey or pro-Meghan and Harry as opposed to Kate and William. 
And then the next day, you're seen as pro the other side. And you and I just see that as, you know, we're just trying to do yeah. accurate, balanced reporting. Yes. And it wasn't pro in the first place. It was just your interpretation is that it's pro. But they want, they have, a, if, you, if you're not pro their side of the view, they start trolling you. Yes. And it's hard. I mean, it's tough. And I get it all the time on a whole range of issues. Um, and, you know, even now, it's just said Israel and people are saying, well, you didn't say Palestine. Yeah. You know, it's going to be, it's so complex, but there's a l- lack of respect for our industry and what we do. And that's come from politicians trying to undermine us because they don't want to be challenged. Yes. So we have to sort of fight back, but we're not going to fight back in the same sort of way. We just need young people to realise that accuracy and information and facts matter, which is why I've never gone down the route of being a, you know, expressing any sort of opinion. I'm still very much down the line. Yes. But that, you know, is a problem in itself because people say, well, you do have an opinion, don't you? So you're being fake by not expressing your opinion. You can't win now. But that's just a tradition. I mean, I'm just sticking to that. Um, On on the idea of trolling and and, uh, online, I'm so fed up and bored of it. I'm bored of the people Mm. who do it. I'm fed up of caring about uh, negativity, about one's role and Mm. job. There's something very liberating in... And I really mean You're this. Blocking. It, in, well, sincerely ignoring it. Yeah. Uh, so, unfortunately, I, you probably have to be on Twitter for your job. I don't. Um, I'm on Instagram. Any sign of trouble, they're gone. So it's fine. It's like mm. a well-run pub. Mm. Uh, but if and people might come up to me as, as people love to bring a bit of bad news to your door, mm. as they say, and say, "God, there's a lot of hitting the fan there on Twitter." I said, "Well, I don't know." Now, mm. a lot of people say, oh, "I didn't know that." They know damn well because they're reading that stuff. Mm. But you can make. Um, a personal choice, not to not to head into the marsh. Well, what, it's a shame. I, I like constructive criticism. You won't get it on Twitter. No, but you do occasionally. So then that's useful. I, you know, you were wrong on that because. But it's the personal stuff that I struggle with. You know, this is typical you. You know, you call yourself a journalist and all of this. Are you reading this, or, Max? Um, you know, and then some of them are really smart and they will say, but you said this at that. You know, be very selective about what you said. Yeah. And then pretend that you've had a narrative and then that will blow up. And that's very frustrating. I mean, like, when, when I was at the World Service, we didn't have the internet. Um, and we, people used to send in letters. What a joyful... To, uh, well, you know, they, some of them were really harsh. Yes. But because they'd sat down and written a letter, <laughs> they're really well thought that's out. And it. I find it really useful. Yes. And I'd write back and say thank you, even though this completely slated me. But I think that, I don't know what, you know, Twitter, I mean, Twitter is very useful to me as a journalist in terms of uh, News. alerts me to yes. stories. Uh, but it's not useful in terms of interacting with people, and partly because it's it's all journalists and politicians and people on there anyway, and they're not the people I'm necessarily trying to reach. If I'm being yes, honest, I'd echo chamber vibe. Meet the, I want to reach the mainstream. And Ryan asked Max about the American interest in the British royal family. I don't know if it's the same in Ireland, but certainly in the UK, there's an impression that Americans are obsessed with Diana and Meghan, particularly. I don't think that's true. The obsession was always the Queen, actually, and um, her as a head of state and a figure of the UK. But it does combine with the Disney princess and young people growing up with Disney princesses and Disney being such a overpowering sort of media, you know, monolith in America. So I think a lot of young... I remember going back to Kate and William's wedding, which is when I first got involved in royal reporting, one of the producers in America of one of the networks said to me, we're going to get up early and we're targeting mothers and daughters who are getting up early to watch this because this is their childhood. Um, So I think it's 
that. Okay. So it's so ingrained in their culture. But also it's a celebrity culture to a large extent. And royalty is a level above celebrity, I think, somehow. And it's unattainable, which is quite a hard concept for Americans to comprehend because you can become a president. Anyone can become can president anything, in America. Yes, yeah. But no one can become head of state in the UK unless you're ma- born or married in. Okay. And I think that actually defines the difference in the cultures, probably with Ireland as well. Uh, there's, you know, there's a bit of a lid on living in the UK. What, to what do you attribute the Harry mania vis-a-vis? And I mean that not necessarily like Beatle mania. I mean it as a mania of interest for right or for wrong. Yeah, but I think that it's the same mania in the UK. I mean, they, it is slight, the tone has changed slightly. Um, well, you know, if you're talking about the Disney princess, I mean, Meghan epitomised that, didn't she, at that wedding? Yeah, but she was all a seemed to very turn... ordinary girl on the yeah. face of it um, who was getting married in a castle, a medieval castle. But now they're horrible about, Harry. about her, you know, she, or depending on who you believe. Uh, I, I think, that, you know, in America, there's divisiveness about them as well. Yeah. Um, if you, you know, what I'd also say is, you know, they are fascinated by royalty. They were fascinated by the queen. And although a lot of those people who are fascinated with royalty are still fascinated by Kate, for example, they see her as the ultimate princess. Mm. We'll see what happens with Meghan and Harry. I mean, what I would say is that um, whenever they talk about the royal family, there's huge interest, but they talk about a lot of other things as well as they try to redefine themselves. And it's whether or not they can transfer that interest into their new life. Yeah, we don't have a heap of time left, but I'm looking at the list of names of people among them that you've interviewed. Uh, I'm going to say a name and I want you to answer in one word your thoughts on the oh, person. How that, that's really mean, isn't it? Yeah. Could totally caught you on the hop yeah. here. Do you want to give it a go for a few Why names? Not? Let's see if we go. Uh, Taylor Swift. Uh, Taylor Swift. In a word. In a word. Yeah. Um, you got it, man. Funny. Funny. That'll do fine. Uh, Tony Blair. Um... Elusive. <laughs> uh, Dolly Parton. Uh, just amazing. That'll do. George Lucas. Very serious or serious. Serious will do. Uh, Michael Caine. Um, personable. Lovely. Uh, Elton John. <laughs> Silence is the answer. I'll take that as a word. Um, well, can I say more? Yeah. He wasn't as confident as I... As David expected. Furnish was, like, very impressive. Okay, so, uh, uh, Bill Gates. Uh, nerdy. St- perfect. Uh, that's a great compliment. Steve Jobs. <laughs> Passionate. And finally, Donald Trump. Confusing. <laughs> <laughs> that's CNN's Max Foster from the Ryan Tuberty Show. And that's it for Playback Daily, so mind yourself till next time.